Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, I'll be chatting about the physics and economics of heat pumps with our industry columnist James McKenzie, who believes that this simple yet effective way of heating and cooling buildings could help the UK meet its net zero carbon goal by 2050. But first, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now that's a question that can bring out the best in childhood imagination and flights of fancy. However, it turns out that the answers given by children are surprisingly narrow, with just 20 jobs making up 75% of the responses of 7 to 11-year-olds in a recent study. So how do we encourage children to broaden their career aspirations and maybe even consider physics? I asked an expert in how young children consider their career choices. I'm joined down the line from Northumbria University by Carol Davenport, a physicist whose research focuses on how to boost the diversity and number of young people choosing STEM careers. That's careers in science, technology, engineering, and maths. Carol has written an opinion piece for Physics World that explores how we can broaden the career aspirations for the next generation. Hi, Carol. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Now, Carol, you begin your Physics World article with a personal anecdote about how at the age of eight, you wrote to the BBC to ask about how you could become a special effects designer. And the BBC replied by saying that you should study physics. I have to say that that's very good of the BBC <laughs> to do that. And, and that led you to become a physicist. Is there research out there that shows that the career expectations of children are formed at, at such a young age? Yes, Hamish, there is. Um, that's, that's what my research is about, is looking at what are children's aspirations from, from that very young age. I wasn't quite eight when I wrote to the BBC, though. I wasn't, I wasn't that precocious. Um, my research looks at um, children from the age, between the ages of eight and 11, and we've asked them about what they want to do when they grow up. And we've done that in two ways. In one way, we've just given them a, a choice of 30 jobs and asked them which ones they'd like to do, which ones they wouldn't like to do. And then a second way, we've asked them to name three things they want to do when they grow up. The striking thing about both those methods of asking children what they want to do to grow up is we find really strongly gendered viewpoints. So girls, if they want to do a sciencey career, want to do the sort of the healthcare, the biological sciences, and the boys tend to say um, around the physical sciences, the engineering and the maths. And that's, so the earliest we've looked at that is the age of eight. Um, more recently, the OECD have also published some work, which they've extended that down to five-year-olds, and they find the similar gendered pattern at the age of five. So there's good evidence that children are making career decisions, not necessarily what they definitely want to be, but the broad areas that they're considering at this very, very young age. Well, that, that's really interesting. So, so in your article, you talk about the influence that parents can have on whether a child is interested in a career in science. Well, what do we know about um, parental influence? 
That's a really good question. And it depends on the age of the child. So we know for older children, for younger young people, um, 14 to 18 year olds, if you ask them who has influenced their career choices, their career decisions, then parents and family are a very, very strong choice of nearly 70% of children in a survey by the Wellcome Trust said that they'd asked and got careers advice from their parents. It becomes much trickier when we're looking at younger children. So we know for young children that parental influence is very, very strong in their development generally, but there's not been as much research looking at career development with young children. So we know, for example, um, parental engagement in children's schooling improves their attainment. And we know that the gendered choices that children are making in their careers have had to come from somewhere. And it's that society, the ecosystem that sits around them. But there hasn't been a great deal of really clear research about what it is about what parents are doing, what family is doing that then helps shape those children's career choices. And that's partly where my next sort of, that's my future research area, I think. Does it have to be the case, for example, that parents are scientists or have some connection to science, um, you know, in order for children to be interested in science? Or is it a bit more subtle than that? So I think it certainly helps if parents are interested in science, not necessarily at a professional level, but if parents, children often pick up what their parents are interested in. So if you've got a parent that quite enjoys watching science programs on the television or listening to science radio programs or browsing, you know, science, popular science fiction, then that will, that will support children's views. But it's not a, you know, it's not a cause and effect. And there are many children whose parents are nothing to do with science who find that they have got a real strong interest in science. So that's, there's a correlation, but not necessarily a causal link. So Carol, you work on a, a program called NU STEM, which aims to increase the diversity and number of young people choosing STEM careers. Um, one initiative that you're pursuing is developing story time activities for nursery-aged children and their families. And, and these make science, technology, engineering, and maths normal topics of conversation in that family. C can you describe some of these activities and, and how they've been received by children and parents? Yes, of course. So one of the great things about children's books is there are a lot of really interesting picture books for younger children that have got a science theme. And so what we've done is we've taken those books and we've effectively simple group sessions with parent and child where we model how to read the story, how to ask questions about the story so that you're reading with the child, not just reading to the child. The parent and child then read the book together again, because we know that young children really enjoy repetition. And then we have a simple activity. So, for example, one project that was funded by the UK Space Agency was looking at robotic space exploration. And so we used simple children's building blocks and we asked children to make their own Mars rover. And we asked the parents to pretend and to discuss what the rover might be looking at, what it might be doing. So it's about encouraging parent and child to talk about the science. One of the things we find with parents, if they, especially if they haven't got a science background, is that they stopped studying science at the age of 16. And so for them, science is very much about just knowing stuff. And if you don't know stuff, then you can't do science. 
Whereas, of course, as a physicist and as, as other scientists, we know that science is about asking questions and finding out the answers. And so what we're encouraging, what we're modeling with parents is that questioning process. They don't have to know the answer to the science question that their child has asked. They can just encourage their child to think about, well, how would we find out that answer? How would we know what the surface of Mars looks like? So that's the sort of activity that we we encourage. It's that how comfortable do you feel do parents feel about talking about the science? And the feedback from the sessions has been really good. We um, evaluated the Family Space Explorers project for the UK Space Agency, and we found that the majority of our parents that had come along, we asked them how comfortable they felt beforehand talking about science, and then we asked them afterwards, and they all felt much more comfortable about talking about science. So that was kind of the aim of the research. More pleasingly, as I wrote one of the books, but more pleasingly is we had letters, we had emails from parents that said, I've just read the book for the sixth time since getting home because my child likes it so much because it's such an enjoyable story. It's received positively by the parents because you're helping them with their parenting and it's received positively by the children because they love reading. And I mean, some people will will argue that children are, are natural scientists because they do just love to ask questions. Um, is it is it really important, um, you know, for adults to, to, you know, to deal with those questions in a in a constructive way? And because I could see how a, how a child could be really turned off while science are asking any questions if 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 they're just you know sort of dismissed as a nuisance for for being so inquisitive. How how can parents deal with that and, and not be driven crazy by all those questions? So it is really tricky. Children are naturally curious um, and they they ask, you know, why is many child's favourite question? And so it is tricky as a parent because there are some times where you don't have the time for that conversation. But it is important to help children think about how they can explore the why Parents need to understand, you know, need to think about why is the children asking, why is my child asking why? And sometimes there's a time to say enough. But mostly what we encourage parents to do is to think about and how do we answer that question? Because that's what makes a scientist is is the not not just the curiosity, but the and how do I find out the answer? And so it's about encouraging parents to think think about how they can develop those skills within their children as well as staying sane when they've been asked why for the 34th time that day and and if we think about a, an ideal childhood you know if, if such a thing exists it it should be a time when children are sort of shielded from the harsher realities of adult life and and allowed to dream about their futures and and you know maybe have unrealistic dreams about being footballers or or YouTubers. Given all the academic and social pressures on, on children these days, do we have to be careful about how we steer them towards STEM? C can we overdo it? I absolutely agree with you. Um, one of the things that at NU STEM we always say is we are not telling children that they have to do a STEM career. Um, we believe that children should have a broad and balanced experience in childhood. And part of that would be exploring STEM careers and part of that would be exploring non-STEM careers. I think what we are trying to do is broaden children's aspirations. They they look around them, they see that working is something that people do, that that's something that people aspire to. 
they look at the jobs that are around them and they, they see have they have quite a narrow range of jobs that they think about because that they have a narrow range of jobs that they see. And so what we think is important is broadening the experience and broadening children's understanding that there are more jobs out there than they know about. And it's not about telling a five-year-old that, no, they can't be a footballer, but it's telling them that, oh, you really enjoy football. There are other careers that could be that. So you could be sports journalist. You could be a physiotherapist. There's a whole range of other careers. And it's about saying that's a great idea and look at what else you could do as well. And so that's, that's the message that we would say. It's not about forcing children to work in STEM. That would be entirely wrong. It's about saying to them, there's this whole world of careers out there. There will be jobs you have never heard of. And and if if if, if a physicist is is out there listening to this and thinking, you know, I would really like to to get involved with encouraging um, children to, to 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 consider STEM careers, what 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 could that person do? There are a number of opportunities that physicists can do. There are formal opportunities, things like STEM ambassadors go, offering to go into your local primary school and just have a chat with the children about what you do every day. I would encourage physicists to help children and young people to see that science is that physics is done by people like them. So the the Institute of Physics Limitless campaign is about helping children and young people to see physics as as reflecting them. And I think that's really important. So if you're going to talk to children about what you do as a physicist, talk about your feelings, talk about how you're solving problems, talk about the characteristics that you have that make you successful at your job, because the children might share some of your characteristics and it would help help them to think that you are like them and then they can then see themselves in those careers. So those are sort of some of the, the, the ways to do that is to make it make it much less about the job and more about what you can do with the job and what sort of person you are. Schools are always looking for people to come in to talk about careers and to talk about jobs. So, you know, if you feel comfortable, have a chat with your local school. I'm sure they would welcome you. And if I can just do a plug for um, scouting, uh, <laughs> I'm a scout leader and um, I've, I've had a great deal of success, actually, both actually as a cub leader as well, introducing um, science to, to the activities that we do. And um, indeed, once we, uh, we, we all piled into the minibus and went up to Bristol University to, um, and we had a tour of, a, of an ultrasound lab. You know, the kids got to play around with things like uh, tractor beams, uh, et cetera. And that, and that was really good fun as well. And I hope that, uh, that they definitely got something out of it. Absolutely. And there is, there is an unofficial girl guiding badge about physicists as well. So there are, you know, uniformed organizations, youth groups, you know, that they're happy for people to come in and talk to their, their young people. You can find Carol's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, How We Can Widen Career Aspirations for the Next Generation. Thanks for joining me today, Carol. Thanks for having me, Hamish. It's been a pleasure talking to you. The heat pump was famously invented when someone burned their hand on the hot outlet pipe of their domestic deep freezer and realized that a similar technology could be used to warm buildings. In the next conversation, I ask our industry columnist about how heat pumps work and why their use 
is not more widespread. I'm joined down the line from Hampshire by James McKenzie, who writes the Transactions column for Physics World. This looks at the relationships between physics and industry. James's latest column is about heat pumps, and it asks, is the answer to climate change lying beneath your feet? Hi, James. Welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. Hello, Hamish. Thank you. Well, I, I'm really glad that, that, that you've joined me because heat pumps are something that I've always been interested in, but never really understood. So my first question for you is, how does a heat pump work? Okay, well, they're, they're quite simple devices. Um, you might want to think of them as a little bit like a fridge in reverse, um, but they're a bit bigger because clearly a house uh, requires a lot more energy uh, to, to heat it. So how they really work is they're an energy efficient way to create hot water and heat in your home. They work by absorbing heat from a, a source, either air or the ground, and transferring it to a liquid, which is then compressed to increase the temperature further. And then the heat is transferred from the liquid, from the cooling circuit outside the house, into an internal circuit using a, a pump and compressor setup. And then obviously the heat is put into the property through either radiators or underfloor heating. Now, the main difference between the two types of heat pump on the market are simply where they get the heat from. They're either air source, in which case they're a bit more like an air conditioner and they absorb heat from the air. Um, and the other type, of course, is the ground source heat pump, which absorbs the heat from the ground. So I don't know whether that makes it clearer or not, Hamish. <laughs> but uh... Yeah, yeah, I think that, that sort of roughly jives with my understanding. I mean, I, I, I sort of think of it as as being like a refrigerator and and when you're operating it in the winter so you're heating your house the ground is the inside of the fridge and your house is the outside of the fridge where you know sort of at the back of the fridge where you can feel the heat does that have i got that right or is that completely backwards exactly exactly and of course heat pumps can be used bidirectionally as well so you could use them to heat or cool your house so uh, I'm, I'm not something we have a huge problem with here in the uk i think we, we mostly need heating but that's generally how they work so think of them like a, a a scaled up fridge and and you've lived in a house that was purpose-built with a heat pump um can you describe the experience was it was it easy to operate was it was it comfortable in the winter Okay, yeah. So I think it was about 15 years ago. So this isn't really new technology, but obviously it's something that uh, hasn't caught into the mainstream fully. And I think that there's some, some good government initiatives to make that happen. But yes, I lived in a house that, that had one of these. It was a purpose-built house. Uh, it was an eco house. So it had lots of solar gain. Um, it was very, very well insulated because I think that's one of the key things to generating uh eco eco houses anyway um so it was about it was built in 2001 and it had a ground source heat pump which uh which was on the sales particulars i didn't design and build it i just moved into the house um and i of course as soon as we moved in we were we were searching around for where this thing is because it was it was quite interesting and eco way of heating the the house but what it was like to live with was was fantastic because it had underfloor heating the house uh, it was very well insulated. It was very cozy. It was situated on a headland in Falmouth Bay, so fantastic views out of the out of the property. And when the storms were raging, 
and the the squalls and the wind were were going on outside you know you were able to sit in the house just absolutely lovely and warm it was very very quiet and and very very cozy and every room had individual temperature controls so you could have different rooms at the temperature you wanted it was just a a fantastic place to uh, to live i actually sort of wondered at the time what why there wasn't more of them but once you get into the detail of that you can kind of see why um i think my favorite part about the house was finding out as a physicist finding out how this thing worked and it took me probably a couple of days to actually find it because it wasn't i was expecting some huge plant room out the back but it wasn't it was a, a tiny box probably about the size of a of a small fridge actually um situated at the back of the house where the bins were so it, was, it took me a while to find it out find out and then most of the um the ground source coils were buried in the ground under the garden so it was quite hard to really see and then the only other bit that was uh, very accessible was inside the house was a was effectively like a, a control box which had a whole load of valves to turn on and off individual circuits again not very big but you could kind of see at the time how that had to be really built into the house at the beginning um i think things have moved on a little bit now um and you can really you can definitely re- retrofit these things in into any house you know we talked about a heat pump being like a fridge and of course you have to you have to plug your fridge in it it, it does consume energy is the you know the amount of electricity that uh that a heat pump uses is it small compared to you know for example if you had electric heaters or is it is it significant it is quite small the amount of electricity that they use but uh this is where the physics i think comes in here they have something called a coefficient of performance and this is the ratio of the heat output to the electrical uh energy input so clearly you want that number to be as big, a, big as possible. So maximum amount of heat, the minimum amount of electricity. Um, and a ground source heat pump, which is what this house had, typically has a, a COP of uh, between three and four and a half, depending on how you wish to, uh, how much heat you want in the house. And what's the COP, James? This is the coefficient of performance, which is that ratio of heat output to electrical input. Um, now. This is where the, you get into the details of um, why do you want a ground source versus an air source heat pump, and they, they are, the answer is actually in the efficiencies. Um, for example, you know this is where the physics comes in. If we're trying to take heat from uh, a warm source and take it into say say the temperature outside was sort of seven degrees or something like that, and you want your house to be uh, 25, 30 degrees, you know an air source heat pump at that point is quite efficient. We'll have a, a COP of about four point if then of course the outside temperature drops to say minus seven um then and you want the same input in your house the efficiency is going to fall because you're going to have to work much harder to get that heat out of the air so this the, the efficiency drops to about two two or so and in some cases these air source heat pumps uh can actually freeze because they're pulling so much heat out of the air they you get the frosting up you used to get on uh, older refrigerators um and you need to keep them you need to clean them as well that that's quite an interesting thing. Now, of course, why you want a ground source heat pump for for ultimate efficiency is the ground doesn't change its temperature very much over over the average year, um, and of course, you're it's being topped up constantly by the sun. So typically, the ground in the UK at about a meter where these uh, coils or slinkies are they uh, as they're called doesn't really change much and is somewhere between nine and twelve degrees C. 
So that means they always operate at a more efficient point. But of course, the installation cost of a ground source heat pump can be quite high because you've got to dig up the garden or the or the property area or put a borehole in or something, some way of, of doing that. So the groundworks can cost you a little bit more. And of course, it's all about that payback situation. You know, what are you going to get? You're going to, you're going to spend a bit more money and you're going to get a more efficient system. I, I think we probably all got our head around that. But uh, and of course, if your COP, your coefficient of performance falls to one, then your heating system is really acting like a, in exactly the same way as an electric fire, as in direct conversion of the heat, uh, sorry, the electricity to heat. So you really want to keep that COP, coefficient of performance, as high as you can in, in designing the system. Given that you're using the energy or the electricity quite efficiently to effectively pump heat rather than generate it directly, unless, of course, your COP falls to, to one, then uh, it's, a, it's a green way of uh, heating your house. But of course, all of these houses and uh, buildings require good insulation because obviously if you've, if you've got a, a poorly insulated house, you're going to need a much bigger capacity of heat pump to make a difference. Um, and, and obviously, the costs of these things are quite high at this point compared to, say, gas boilers or similar. You know, a gas boiler might cost 50, 50 pounds a kilowatt and be available in a sort of 20 kilowatt uh, boiler for a domestic uh, setting, whereas a comparable heat source, uh, a ground source heat pump could cost you sort of 500 pounds a kilowatt. But of course, if you've got an inch of well insulated property, then you're going to need a lot smaller capacity. So it always makes sense to insulate as part of any sort of uh, eco design requirements. And of course, you know, economic as well. So now the air source heat pumps do find themselves being quite a lot cheaper because they don't have all the groundworks associated with them. I think. One of the things that I was quite inspired to write the article about is the recent 10-point green industrial evolution, uh, revolution that the government has envisaged, where they, they've actually highlighted that they want to see us install 600,000 heat pumps per year by 2028. And so they've identified this heat pump technology as, as absolutely vital to our zero uh, net zero carbon goal by 2050. So that's why I was inspired to write the the article. And if if we do uh, the numbers they suggest, then we'll be saving about 71 million tons of carbon dioxide emissions, which is about 16% of the country's total. So, you know, a worthy a worthy target and a, and a good reason uh, to push this eco technology. So we live in Bristol. We we, we live in a, uh, a sort of a classic 1930s semi, and um, we just had the walls insulated, and so the house is the house is nice and warm. What would we have to do to have a, a ground source heat pump installed? Um, you know, we've got a r- relatively large back garden. Would it involve completely digging up the garden or having a sort of a drilling rig in there? What what would happen? Well, I, th- I think if you've uh, got an existing garden you're incredibly proud of, I think you may not want anybody to mess with your garden. Okay. But if you're prepared to to, to sort of go that way, then um, yes, you're going to need a certain uh, amount of groundworks. Um, I mean, these things should be, as we talked about, should be buried at sort of, you know, below half a meter to a meter, depending on your climate zone makes the most sense. Um, and you're going to need a reasonable area. so. I mean, in the in I did look at the plans for the house I lived in Cornwall, which was about a five bedroomed house, and that the slinkies, as they're called, or the coils that went under the garden, 
um, extended out about 10 or 15 meters from the house. And there was two sets of coils and they occupied a width of about a meter and a half. So if that's something you can't accommodate in your garden, Hamish, then I suspect uh, you might want to have a look at the alternative, which is an air source heat pump, which is a bit cheaper because of that reduced ground source, uh, sorry, that reduced groundworks requirement. But, um, you know, is still an eco choice to make compared to a gas boiler. Okay. And, and, and another thing that, that I've often wondered about heat pumps is what happens if everybody gets a heat pump? Um, you know, let's say a ground sourced heat pump and, you know, sort of everybody's pulling heat out of the ground during the winter. Is, is, is there enough heat to go around? Uh, I mean, could, could, could the ground suddenly freeze <laughs> on a very cold night when it normally wouldn't? Um, you, you know, are, are there sort of capacity problems in, in urban areas, um, you know, particularly in Europe, which, which tend to be very densely populated? Uh, that's a really good question. And to be honest with you, one of the, when I wrote the article, I did get a few questions about that. So I did do uh, a little bit of a back of the envelope calculation, and it goes back to how much energy the sun puts into the ground on an average year. So if you think about the numbers I gave you, which was about a, a 20 square meters for the ground source um, heat pump, uh, the actual amount of energy that may be incident on the ground over the year uh, could, could be as much as 10 to 20 times that. So there isn't really a capacity problem for uh, taking heat out of the ground. Um, there, is in, there isn't really one for the air either, because, but, but then in, in big cities, there have been situations where the opposite is the case, where the, the outside temperature can be quite a lot warmer because all the buildings are being air conditioned. So, you know, you find the, the local sort of street temperature in, in on a still day in, in the middle of London is actually much higher than the rest of the country because actually all the air conditioning is pumping heat out. And so you are going to get some kind of capacity issues. It's, it's not going to cause the ground to freeze because they're all over-spec and well-engineered. And don't forget, we are talking about heat conduction through the ground uh, that's being topped up constantly. I, I, I haven't done sort of a, a, an analysis past the back of the envelope, but I can't envisage any problems. And and of course, these things have been engineered to cope with uh, for efficiency. So clearly, they don't want to get into a situation where you're pulling so much out of there. But it's all about doing the maths on your installation to make sure that's the case. You know, a good example of that actually is the IOP headquarters in King's Cross. They actually didn't really have a garden as such because it's a it's a it's a built up area in central London. And so they put in uh, vertical boreholes uh, into the ground, extending about uh, 60 meters below the building. And, you know, the, the, the maths were done on that. And there is no challenge about pulling that kind of heat out of the building. And the IOP was a the IOP system in its first year of operation, which is a combined heating cooling system, um, was 3.4. So, you know, efficient. And there was no big racks of air conditioning and air source heat pump uh sort of fans because they the fans are quite noisy uh and so if you're trying to do quite a lot of heating that's whereas this uh this geo kitten that i had installed in the house was very very quiet in fact i really struggled to to hear it uh from where it was located um so but yes the whole density of how much heat you pull out of there i don't think that's something that you need to be worried about in a in a in any real world scenario with a little bit of sensible engineering Central London, yes, maybe you're going to have to 
put a lot more boreholes in. And of course, there's a practicality uh, for that. You know, those those are difficult to put in unless you're actually building a new building. So the air source heat pumps probably look like a, a more viable alternative. But then most of the buildings in central London seem to have a high degree of air conditioning as well. So it's really a similar system, but running in reverse. Your house in, in Cornwall, in, in the column, you mentioned that um, the, the heat pump system was made by a UK company called Kensa. Do, do you see heat pump design and manufacturing as a place where people with physics backgrounds could make an important contribution? Well, yeah, I think the efficiencies of the systems and how to improve that and, and the, the materials that you use all make a difference. It's all in the physics. Uh, it's really a heat transfer um, bit of physics there. Um, but engineering those, there's a high degree of engineering there. So the, the, the guys who, were, who founded Kenzer, and I did get to know them because I was so impressed with the system that I actually realized I, I, I sort of looked them up on the internet and uh, figured out that they were local. Uh, so I gave them a call and said, I'd love to, I'd love to sort of see, you know, what you do. And they said, oh, well, we make them here. So they gave me a tour of the, of the factory in the early 2000s. And it was fascinating because they, they are quite simple devices, but the engineering to make them reliable over a sort of 20 year period is actually quite impressive. Now, the, the, when I first visited the place in, in the early 2000s, it was relatively small and they were, they were designing these things, they were engineering and building them and you know, growing the installation business. And of course, it's all about how good the installation is. So they've, they've grown that. I then visited again, I think, around about 2009 when David Cameron uh, visited the place. I was invited along because I'd shown some interest in, in the company and I'd, I've kept in touch with them over the years and, and their business is growing greatly. Um, and obviously, they, they're, um, they're one of the few UK manufacturers. I don't really know about too many of the others, but um, you know, it's a real made in Britain success story of uh, engineering and, uh, and physics being translated into real products that can uh, can deliver value and uh, improve our position on on um, on our emissions too so you know very very positive and you know this is a this is a long way from where the first heat pump started it was for, the first one was actually developed uh, following a, a bit of a bizarre accident by a, a guy called Robert uh, Weber uh, he burnt his hand on um, on an outlet pipe from his domestic deep freezer and then sort of thought well hang on if it's generating that much heat uh maybe and then he started thinking about it and he he built something in his house to uh to demonstrate that he could heat his house effectively using the the heat he pulled from the ground so uh but but they're a long way from that there's a there's a lot of controls a lot of sensible choices on materials uh solid engineering to make these things practical uh, maintenance free and, and last a long time. And, and I think, uh, you know, you, you kind of get what you pay for in this market, like at many others, and there may be, uh, cheaper ones on the market, but, uh, I, I don't know whether the, they're as well engineered as, as the work from Kenza. Um, and Kenza was founded by, uh, two marine engineers. So that's a quite a tough environment to install anything. You know, you've got corrosive, uh, uh, seawater, you've got, um, small spaces you've got you know difficult to work on things in in cramped areas so you know they they've used all that understanding on how to make a a heat pump in the UK and uh, it, i i have to say really impressive uh, company 
I, I was going to say little company, but it isn't now. I think it's just had just got a recent investment from uh, legal and general to to help them scale up and deliver more heat pumps. Uh, and by the way, they don't just do houses. Uh, I was quite surprised to discover they've developed products for for flats uh, where you've got common heating coils and borehole systems, and you've got smaller heat pumps. So each each flat or each housing unit in a development can have its own smaller uh, kind of heat pump and then shared common heating coils and loops. So but that requires some sort of work at the beginning, which is why I, I'm very encouraged by the the government putting in this uh, 10 point plan because they're actually going to effectively put in uh, the right regulatory and uh, grant based frameworks to ensure that these things get designed in at the beginning. So it'll, I'm sure they'll put them into uh, there was even discussion about boilers, be, gas boilers being banned in the UK. I don't, I'm not sure they've gone quite that far yet, but but certainly, uh, you know, the the ground source heat pump and the air source heat pump are a key part of how to heat Britain's housing stock and commercial buildings efficiently in a, in a, with a with climate change in mind. You can find James's column on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Is the Answer to Climate Change Lying Beneath Your Feet? And if you click on his byline, you can find previous columns that cover everything from advice on making your next elevator pitch to how to make money from the moon. Now, James, I'm always amazed at at columnists who who come up with with ideas to write about every every month. How how do you approach um, writing your column? Where, Where do you get your ideas from? I guess I get my ideas from a whole bunch of sources, um, but generally I've got quite a few things that I'm I'm passionate about. One of them is the translation of physics into business, and it sounds uh, into products and, and technology and services, and it sounds very very easy to do. Oh well, we've we've written this paper and it shows it works, and and then somebody magically will turn it into a product. Well, I'm I. I like to try and pick segments of how that works from funding to how to communicate with investors, all aspects of that, because actually from, from going from a paper to an end product is, is a very exciting journey, journey. And it's actually one of the bits of business that I've enjoyed the most. Um, I, I really like to take early-ish stuff, st- stage technology, and try and map it into products. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a startup guy. I've done three or four of those. Um, and that's the fun for me in the journey. So I try and draw on my experiences of of that and friends of mine who've who've worked on in various things and and try and get that message out to uh, the physics world leadership that there's there's a lot of exciting um, opportunities there. And you know the business of converting physics in, into products is is quite an exciting journey. So I just draw on that to be honest, Hamish. Well, that's great. Th- thanks for, for being on the podcast today. And, and hopefully we'll have you back in the future to talk about uh, some of your upcoming columns. Thank you very much indeed. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Carol Davenport and James McKenzie for joining me. And please do check out their articles on the Physics World website. I'd also like to give a special thank you to our producer, Callum Jelf. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest edition of the Physics World Stories podcast.
which charts the scientific triumphs and sad demise of the Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico. Host Andrew Glester is joined by three leading astronomers to talk about the iconic telescope's myriad roles in science and popular culture, including the search for alien life and the setting for a James Bond film. You can find that episode in the podcast section of the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Arecibo Observatory, a scientific giant that fell to Earth. Physics World.